1980s nostalgia has taken the United States by storm. In the past 10 years, reboots of The Thing, RoboCop, and Ghostbusters hit the movie theaters. Karate Kid, Star Wars, and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure all got sequels, and Netflix's throwback fantasy series Stranger Things dominated the cultural conversation. As part of a cross-promotional campaign in 2019, Coca-Cola released Stranger Things-branded bottles of New Coke. For those who may not remember, New Coke is a variation on the classic Coke recipe and an iconic emblem of 80s culture. It's as recognizable as leg warmers, shoulder pads, or Madonna. During the promotion, customers could buy a collector's pack with two glass bottles and two cans of the beverage for $19.85. That works out to about 40 ounces, a bit more than a liter of soda, for 20 bucks. Just to put that in perspective, a liter of Coke today is about $1.50. But it's not surprising that Coca-Cola would cash in on New Coke's infamy. The product is the stuff of corporate legends. Today, marketing students study the flavor's disastrous debut as a lesson in what not to do with a product launch. Still, as embarrassing as the New Coke disaster was, they seem to be celebrating it with the Stranger Things tie-in. And maybe that's because the humiliating mistake wasn't a mistake at all. As unlikely as it sounds, perhaps the beverage's flop was all part of a plan for Coca-Cola to crush their largest corporate rivals, Pepsi. Sit back and crack open a soda. We're about to take a deep dive into the Cola Wars. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first of two episodes on the Cola Wars. In the 1970s and 80s, Americans were pressured to decide whether they were Team Coke or Team Pepsi. It seemed like a harmless corporate competition, but the battle for soda dominance may have had a real human cost. Today, we're going to cover the history of both Coca-Cola and Pepsi. We'll talk about the controversial moves each company made on the path to become number one. And we'll explore the infamous New Coke debacle. Next time, we'll ask whether New Coke was actually a cover for a more nefarious scheme. Perhaps the updated flavor was always intended to be a flop. The soda may have been released so Coca-Cola could quietly tweak the classic recipe and remove the cocaine they'd secretly included in the original formula. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. In the late 1880s, a pharmacist named John Doc Pemberton decided to get rich selling homemade cures and elixirs. We should note, in spite of his nickname, Doc wasn't a traditional doctor. He hadn't trained in mainstream medical practice, instead advocating for alternative treatments and remedies. And he wasn't alone in his passions. Late 19th century doctors and patients were wild about miracle drugs. And even pharmacists could get rich quick selling inert, or sometimes dangerous, products as cure-all remedies. Before Pemberton's time, even something as benign as ketchup was marketed as a treatment for diarrhea, jaundice, and rheumatism. Bayer Pharmaceuticals peddled heroin as a cough suppressant and a safer alternative to morphine. And literal snake oil salesmen claimed that rattlesnakes' bodily fluids could cure their gullible customers. It's no wonder that Pemberton figured he could brew his own dubious remedy and make a fortune. His first hit product was called French Wine Coca. It contained several ingredients that would raise eyebrows today, but they were considered healthy at the time. Things like wine and coca leaves, which contain cocaine. Pemberton claimed that French Wine Coca was an energy drink and a remedy for morphine addiction. And the people loved it. Unsurprisingly, the beverage sold well. But it wasn't long before Pemberton ran into an obstacle. 
Just months after French wine coca hit the shelves at the end of 1885, Fulton County, Georgia, outlawed alcohol. Atlanta-based Doc Pemberton had a new problem. Realizing he'd probably never strike it big with his fermented tonic, Pemberton went back to the drawing board. He wanted to replicate French wine coca's success, but with a non-alcoholic beverage. Luckily, he had a new product in mind. It too featured coca leaves, but he added the cola nut, a West African fruit pit that's high in caffeine. The mixture of coca and cola gave customers a mild buzz and inspired the drink's name, Coca-Cola. The beverage sold modestly in its first year. Unfortunately, Pemberton wasn't particularly skilled with marketing and distribution, so shortly before his death, he sold the business to a fellow druggist with more business sense, Asa Candler. From there, Candler built a beverage empire through soda fountains. In the 19th century, cola manufacturers generally sold syrup to local businesses. This was more efficient because soda bottling technology was fairly new and not widespread yet. There, carbonated water was added to the syrup so the Coke was fresh and fizzy when it was served. Candler's forward-thinking mindset didn't stop there. He knew he could reach more customers if he didn't limit his avenues of distribution. So in 1889, he sold bottling rights to a plant in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, customers didn't need to visit the nearest soda fountain for a glass of Coca-Cola. They could buy it at the corner shop and drink it at home. Then, Candler made another, even bigger shakeup. He altered the Coca-Cola recipe. We don't know all the changes Candler made to the recipe, but we know one of his goals. He didn't want to sell cocaine to his customers. And he had two reasons why. First, Candler was very religious. Second, and more importantly, he was racist. Most soda fountains were segregated, so only white people could drink Coca-Cola on tap. But once he started selling bottled Coke, Southern newspapers began printing rumors of, quote, Negro cocaine fiends, end quote. White supremacists suggested that the soda drove people of color to commit violent crimes, including sexual assault. Hypocritically, nobody expressed any concern that cocaine might drive white people to commit crimes. And to be realistic, there probably wasn't enough cocaine in the beverage to spur consumers to violence. Although it's hard to say because it doesn't seem like anyone was tracking how much they were using in the recipe. Regardless, Candler was committed to eliminating the Coke from Coke. The problem was, coca leaves have a distinct flavor. They couldn't be left out of the recipe without ruining the way the beverage tasted. So, he invented a process to decocainize the leaves, meaning he removed the components that give the plants their potency. With this process, people could drink Coca-Cola with real coca, but not get high. It took him a while to perfect the decocainizing process, but by 1902, he'd figured out how to remove most, but not all, of the drug. The soda only had one four-hundredth of a grain of cocaine, or about 65 milligrams per ounce of syrup. For context, at that concentration, you'd have to chug nine liters of syrup to get the equivalent of a single line of powder. 
since the syrup gets diluted in carbonated water before it's bottled or served at a soda fountain, you'd need to drink even five times more Coca-Cola, nearly 12 gallons, to get the same buzz. The company didn't figure out how to completely neutralize the coca leaves until 1929. But then, finally, Coke was totally cocaine-free. Even without its signature stimulant, the cola still became America's favorite soda, taking hold of the global market, too. By the time World War II broke out in Europe and Asia, Coca-Cola had bottling companies across the globe, even in Nazi Germany. That's because in 1929, Coke opened their German plant. Four years later, when Hitler won the chancellorship and Europe started preparing for war, Coca-Cola's executives weighed their options. Ultimately, they decided to chase profits for as long as they could, which meant they didn't endorse the Nazi party, but they were more than happy to collaborate with them. As nationalistic fervor swept across the country, they marketed Coca-Cola as a symbol of German pride. Adolf Hitler and Hermann Göring are said to have loved the beverage. In 1939, the Nazis invaded Poland, spurring on World War II. But even that didn't discourage the American corporation. The company reportedly kept the lines of communication open with German officials in order to protect their bottom line. To help smooth the relationship, Coca-Cola's head of German operations, a businessman named Max Kite, displayed swastikas and Hitler's photos at a company convention. He also led his employees in a Sig Heil to show their loyalty. And the American office didn't seem to have a problem with any of this. Their collaboration with Kite and the Nazis didn't end until the United States officially joined the war effort in 1941. But even after Coca-Cola officially cut ties with their German plant, the facility was still there, as were its employees. Kite couldn't import American ingredients anymore, so he used the factories he had to invent a new soda, Fanta. When the war ended, Coca-Cola's American executives couldn't help but notice Kite's ingenuity. They reportedly investigated him, and despite the salutes and the swastikas at the plant, Koch ruled that because Kite never joined the Nazi party, his behavior didn't merit termination. In 1955, Koch began formally producing Fanta in Italy. Unlike the Nazi version, this iteration used fresh ingredients and was orange-flavored. Customers went wild for it. But while Coca-Cola executives conquered the European soda market, they failed to notice a dangerous challenger in their home country. An upstart soda company was poised to become their largest competitor, and its name was Pepsi. Coming up, the cola wars begin. You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what the doctors can't, or so they say. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the podcast series Cults. 
Be sure to check out our four-part special on Miracle Healers airing right now. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies, but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly groups in history, tune in to Cults every Tuesday. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple, to Charles Manson and the Manson family, to Keith Raniere and Nexium, you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Now back to the story. In the late 19th century, two soda companies hit the scene. Coca-Cola was an instant hit. Meanwhile, Pepsi was David to their Goliath. They didn't have the market share or the brand recognition, but they were ready to take on the giant. The inventor of Pepsi was a pharmacist named Caleb Bradham. And like Doc Pemberton, Bradham wanted to develop a medicinal drink in 1893. Given that Coca-Cola had been on the market for seven years at that point, it's possible he even took inspiration from Pemberton's success. Originally, Pepsi was marketed as a digestive aid. Its name, Pepsi-Cola, was meant to evoke pepsin, which can settle upset stomachs. Interestingly, Pepsi didn't contain pepsin, and that wasn't the only problem. Customers didn't flock to Pepsi the way they'd done with Coke, and Bradham didn't have the business acumen to turn a profit on the soda. When World War I began, he stockpiled sugar under the impression its price would only rise over time. Instead, the market tanked out, Bradham went bankrupt, and in 1923, he had no choice but to sell the company. Then the Great Depression hit, and the new owners of Pepsi also filed for bankruptcy in 1931. At one point, they even tried to sell Pepsi to the country's largest soda manufacturer, Coca-Cola. But Coke wasn't interested. From their perspective, Pepsi was a minor, failed upstart. It wasn't even worth owning. But it was a mistake to underestimate Pepsi. The company was about to make a comeback by way of a savvy marketing team that knew exactly how to entice customers. This new team was smart. After the Great Depression, they began selling 12-ounce Pepsi bottles for five cents apiece. At the time, Coke peddled six-ounce bottles for the same price. So Pepsi argued that they were a better value, a message that resonated with cash-strapped Americans. During and after World War II, Pepsi adapted their campaigns with the changing times. But they weren't close to being as popular as Coca-Cola, and they knew they'd never win over Coke's most devoted customers. Instead, Pepsi targeted potential customers who'd largely been ignored, people of color. In 1947, Pepsi shocked the nation by featuring black people in an advertisement. 
The campaign triggered complaints and threats from racist customers, but it won them a new market, black soda drinkers. In reply, Coca-Cola dug its heels in, branding itself as a soda for people with traditional values. A 1954 print ad proclaimed, pure and wholesome, delicious and refreshing, Coca-Cola is unlike any other drink in the world. And it's no mistake that one of Coke's most famous spokespeople is Santa Claus, an icon of tradition. In the 1960s, Pepsi updated their marketing tactics to target yet another untapped consumer base, teenagers and young adults who hadn't developed a soda preference. Thus began a 1963 ad campaign celebrating the so-called Pepsi generation. Celebrities with teen appeal touted the soda's youthful elements. As Pepsi's president and CEO Roger Enrico later explained, We've used this Pepsi Generation campaign to reach out not just to the young, but to all people who look forward, who are curious about the next thing, who want more out of life. By advertising to young people, Pepsi inadvertently stepped into the growing cultural rift. Liberal, rebellious youth were distancing themselves from conservative, older Americans. Pepsi wasn't just a fad for the young, they wanted to be seen as a progressive company. But behind the scenes, they weren't quite as forward-thinking. In 1970, Pepsi had a bottling plant in Chile, a country that seemed poised to turn socialist with that year's election. Far-left presidential candidate Salvador Allende had narrowly lost the presidency in former campaigns. This time around, he looked like he would win. But this was during the Red Scare, and the United States couldn't abide another far-left ruler in South America, so the CIA intervened. Throughout the years leading up to the presidential race, the United States funneled millions of dollars into anti-Allende propaganda. But the cash influx wasn't enough. Allende still won. After his inauguration in November 1970, Allende raised workers' wages and started to nationalize the agricultural and mining industries. This must have concerned the Chilean Pepsi executives. If their operations were taken over by the government or shut down, they'd never make a profit. Which is probably why, in September 1970, PepsiCo's chairman placed two phone calls to U.S. President Richard Nixon. After their conversations, the CIA began supplying weapons to right-wing Chilean activists. Thanks to this clandestine support, Augusto Pinochet staged a coup on September 11, 1973. Pinochet's followers stormed the presidential palace as President Allende died, apparently by suicide, but some have alleged that Pinochet's supporters murdered him. This might sound like another conspiracy theory, but many of the details, including Pepsi's involvement in the coup, have been confirmed by the former American ambassador to Chile, Edward Corey. In other words, Pepsi and Coke weren't just corporations anymore. They'd become major players in the United States' international agenda. With this newfound power, each company appeared intent to preserve its influence. Think of how Facebook crushed MySpace, or how Netflix made Blockbuster obsolete. 
When Pepsi and Coca-Cola weren't securing their strongholds overseas, they were battling each other for market dominance. The media branded this rivalry the Cola Wars. Customers followed the competition the way they might watch a football game or soccer match. They identified with their preferred brand. Ongoing press coverage only further reminded people to pick up their favorite soda each time they visited the grocery store. Which means, throughout the Cola Wars, Coke and Pepsi both saw sales increases. The competition was good for everyone. But Pepsi was still second best. In the United States, Coca-Cola was king. So, Pepsi tried to find other ways to boost revenue. They merged with Frito-Lay, the company that makes Doritos, Funyuns, and Lay's potato chips. Later, in the late 1970s and mid-80s, Pepsi even ventured into owning restaurant chains. Pizza Hut, Taco Bell, and Kentucky Fried Chicken were added to the portfolio. Not only did these purchases guarantee another revenue stream, Pepsi also gained exclusivity. If you love Coca-Cola, but you're craving a quesarito, you're out of luck. Of course, Coke had exclusive partnerships too, including a lucrative deal with McDonald's. But they didn't stop there. After Pepsi's fast food shopping spree, Coca-Cola bought Columbia Pictures, the film studio responsible for Tootsie, Gandhi, and Days of Our Lives. All these acquisitions were the icing on the cake, or rather, the ice cubes in the glass. Even as the corporations grew, they remained focused on beverage dominance. And long before Pepsi acquired fast food and salty snacks, they released their first diet soda. Coca-Cola shot back in 1982, debuting Diet Coke. And while the name suggested a healthier version of the classic Coke recipe, in reality, it was a totally new formula. Ironically, it was much sweeter than original Coke. And that was another shot across Pepsi's bow. Pepsi had always been the sweeter soda. Now, Diet Coke was encroaching on their territory. So Pepsi returned fire through an aggressive advertising campaign. In 1983, they signed a $5 million deal with a pop superstar, and not just any flash-in-the-pan teeny bopper, they snagged the king of pop, Michael Jackson. This was a huge risk. The contract broke records for celebrity endorsement payouts. On top of that, according to Pepsi president and CEO Roger Enrico, the commercial shoot was riddled with challenges. First, Jackson stipulated up front that he didn't want his face to be visible in the commercial for more than four seconds total, and the final cut could only use a single close-up shot. That's a lot of restrictions for $5 million. Yep, and things got even worse when filming began. During one sequence, Jackson was supposed to dance on a stage while pyrotechnics fired around him, but something went wrong. One of the effects went off while Jackson was standing right next to it. His head actually caught on fire. Jackson lost nearly all of his hair, his scalp had second-degree burns, and he suffered from severe migraines throughout his recovery. Pepsi executives feared he'd sue, running up their $5 million bill even more. Instead, Jackson made peace with the soda giant when they agreed to finance a new burn unit at Culver City's Brotman Medical Center. 
And when the commercial debuted, Pepsi's leaders forgot all their fears and concerns. During his scant four seconds of airtime, Jackson lit up the screen. Pepsi sales immediately spiked. So much so that they became the fastest growing non-diet soda in the market. They were on pace to finally defeat Coca-Cola. But Jackson couldn't take all the credit. Shortly before they shot his ad, Pepsi's execs discovered a secret weapon. It was so effective, it blew Michael Jackson's campaign out of the water. The sip test. A sip test is exactly what it sounds like. A taste test based on a single small sip. It's not exactly scientific either. You may not want to drink an entire glass of sugary soda, but generally speaking, if you only get a small taste, you're more likely to prefer something even sweeter. Which meant, when Pepsi conducted blind sip tests, the subjects largely preferred it over Coke. Even devoted Coca-Cola fans picked Pepsi more than half of the time. That became the theme of a new marketing campaign called the Pepsi Challenge. In the summer of 1983, the soda brand released a series of commercials that showed everyday people choosing Pepsi over Coca-Cola, quote, time after time after time. The campaign made lifelong Coke drinkers reconsider their soda preferences. Consequently, the upstart soda jumped off the shelves. In the early 1980s, supermarkets were selling more Pepsi than Coke. The latter still had sizable revenue streams from restaurants and vending machines, settings where Pepsi wasn't an option due to exclusive deals. But when Coca-Cola and Pepsi faced off directly, Pepsi consistently won. It was only a matter of time before the United States had a new number one soda. The battle lines were drawn. The cola wars were sparking. It was anyone's game. That is, until Coke made one of the biggest blunders in all of corporate history. They released a new soda so unpopular, it almost did what Prohibition, World War II, and competing cola companies couldn't. New Coke nearly drove Coca-Cola out of business. Coming up, the surprising saga of New Coke. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now back to the story. In 1982, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were at each other's throats. The brilliant Pepsi Challenge campaign had peeled even lifelong Coca-Cola devotees away from the brand. 
it seemed like only a matter of time until Pepsi would become the top-selling cola in the United States. But the SIP test results gave Coke executives valuable information, specifically that the average consumer seemed to prefer sweet soda. So it was only natural that Coca-Cola would try to launch their own more sugary beverage to compete with Pepsi. Remember, they already had one syrupy line, Diet Coke. But there were a lot of customers who didn't want to drink a diet soda. They wanted all the flavor, all the calories, and all the sugar content. So Coke's employees got to work developing a regular sweet recipe. That meant a massive R&D phase, the largest in the company's history. They conducted 200,000 blind taste tests over the course of three years. They asked people to compare the new formula to Pepsi, to regular Coke, and to Diet Coke. Based on the feedback, Coca-Cola continued to tweak their recipe. In 1985, they found it. The new concoction consistently won internal taste tests against Pepsi and original Coca-Cola. It was undeniably the tastiest soda out there. The question was, how could they market it to customers? They could have sold it as a new Coca-Cola flavor, just like they'd done with Diet Coke. But executives were reluctant to do that. They feared the new blend would splinter their customer base. Some people would prefer the original cola, some the newer one, and eventually sales would split so much that Pepsi would become the national top-selling soda. So instead, Coca-Cola executives opted for a much bolder move. They discontinued the original flavor forever. The new Coke would be the only Coke. Before we continue, let's pause to define some terms. When the corporation released this new flavor, they didn't give it a special name. They just called it Coca-Cola, although the cans were labeled as new. Seeing this, most customers called it New Coke to differentiate it from the original flavor, and we'll be doing the same. In the run-up to its release, New Coke was a closely guarded secret. Even during taste tests, marketing executives didn't want to let on that the improved recipe would replace the existing one. So they never asked how their taste testers might react if the original version went away entirely. On April 23, 1985, Coke's CEO spoke to 700 journalists to announce that for the first time in 99 years, they'd changed their recipe. New Coke had arrived. To celebrate the product launch, Coca-Cola hosted a rally in the same city as their headquarters, Atlanta, Georgia. They launched 25,000 balloons into the air, all red and white to reflect their branding. Now, only one question remained. Would people take to the new flavor? At first, the reaction was positive. In the weeks after New Coke's release, sales reportedly went up by 8%. Those numbers, combined with Diet Coke's, meant the Coca-Cola Corporation broke records in the summer of 1985. But the brand made enemies in a small but vocal segment of their fan base. These consumers missed the original flavor, and they hated the fact that it was no longer for sale. So people complained, to the tune of 1,500 customer calls a day. 
The conversations were so intense, Coca-Cola brought in psychologists, and the experts said that the customers sounded as troubled as if they'd recently lost a family member. All the while, sales stayed high. It's hard to explain, but people seemed to love New Coke, even while they came out in droves to critique it. Dissatisfied Coca-Cola fans signed petitions. They held rallies. They organized letter-writing campaigns. The frustrations made for good news, so the press ran with them. It didn't take long for the discontent to become the dominant narrative about Coke. It didn't matter that the soda sold well. Everyone was talking about how it didn't taste right. It was too similar to Pepsi. It was a betrayal of Coca-Cola as an American institution. Even talk show hosts mocked New Coke. Late-night hosts like Johnny Carson and David Letterman guided the TV side of the narrative. Their monologues harped ruthlessly on how terrible New Coke was. Customers responded to this press, and seemingly overnight, Coca-Cola sales plummeted. The corporation has never confirmed exactly how much money they lost, but the New York Times estimated that $30 million worth of product sat on shelves. That, coupled with the $4 million they blew developing the new flavor, made New Coke one of the costliest blunders in soda history. One thing was clear. Everyone seemed to want the original Coca-Cola back and Coke's competitors were poised to jump in on the opportunity. Pepsi assigned a team to try to reverse engineer the original recipe. They cracked the code too, but with just one problem. The soda's flavor depended on decocainized coca leaves, and Coke was the only company with legal authority to distribute coca in the United States. Pepsi could have applied for an exemption, but that would have tipped off their competitors. They hoped to recreate the flavor some other way. They just needed a little more time in research and development. Pepsi was poised to release their Coca-Cola copycat, dubbed Savannah Cola, on Labor Day 1985. If they pulled it off, they would capture fans of Pepsi and Coke. Which meant Coca-Cola had to do something before early September, or else they might go under. So, on July 11th, Coke re-released their original flavor, the one they'd promised to discontinue forever. It had only been 79 days since New Coke's debut. Sales immediately recovered. The public had asked for original Coca-Cola, and they got original Coca-Cola. The corporation was saved. But that wasn't the end of the story. In the early 90s, Coca-Cola re-released New Coke as a unique flavor. For a decade, New Coke and the original sold side by side. But the offshoot never quite took off, leaving the corporation to discontinue New Coke entirely in 2002. New Coke went down in history as an iconic failure, an example of what not to do when launching a new product. So much so that it's easy to miss one key detail. The swap worked. When Coke Classic was re-released, sales spiked. The original flavor sold better than it had before the new Coke release. Absence had made the heart grow fonder, and Coca-Cola had transformed the largest marketing debacle in American history into a victory. They couldn't have done better if they'd planned it. 
Or perhaps they did plan it. It seems like too much of a coincidence that Coke would bounce back from a devastating loss purely by chance. Maybe New Coke was meant to fail. That might sound unlikely, but there are a few possible motives. Like conspiracy theory number one, Coca-Cola knew they needed to stoke fervor in their customer base in order to win the cola wars, and they did so with New Coke. Or conspiracy theory number two, the corporation used the three months that original Coke was off the market to fiddle with a recipe. By the time it was re-released, the classic flavor had been gone too long for customers to notice the slightly different taste. Or finally, conspiracy theory number three. Coca-Cola used this opportunity to remove something harmful from the soda, like the final traces of cocaine. That might sound unlikely, but is it any less likely than America's supermarkets and restaurants becoming fronts in a vicious cola war? We'll find out next time when we return to the trenches. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with a new episode on the Cola Wars. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Mackenzie Moore and Allie Wicker, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.